0: Now, before we open our Bibles together, let's just bow and speak to God in prayer and ask for his help in the meeting. Our Father, we turn again in our need to thee in heaven, and we thank thee for the open access that we have to thee. We heard of it earlier today, that we can come with confidence and we can enter into thy presence through the blood and the value and the name and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank thee that thy word tells us that it is a throne of grace to which we can come, And at that throne, we can find grace to help in time of need. And surely, Father, this is an occasion when we do sense our deep need of Thee. Our desire is that others would learn of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that through Him, they will find the forgiveness of sins and receive eternal life. This is a work that is uniquely Thine to do. And so we begin by coming to ask Thee to honor Thy Son tonight, that Thy Spirit would work in the meeting, that souls who do not know the Lord Jesus would understand their need, be convicted of their sin, and that their eyes that until this point have been blind to the truth would be opened to understand the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior, and that their wills would be bowed to accept Him and receive eternal life. We thank Thee for everyone who is here, those that have stayed after a long day, others who have come along for this meeting tonight. We thank Thee for each one. And we ask that thy word will be a blessing to each heart, as we ask this in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much to all who have either stayed or who have come for this meeting tonight. I know that in the audience there are a number of children, and uh, you've had a long day sitting through meetings that, I was going to say long, boring meetings, that wouldn't be very gracious to the men who spoke But uh, from your perspective as a child, they may have seemed like very long, boring meetings and uh, running around in the hallway between meetings, and you're now at the end of the day, and it might be easy to be tired and kind of drift off and not pay attention. Could I just very, very kindly ask, if you're a child in this meeting, no matter what your day's been like, if you could give me your attention for the next 20 minutes or so, 25 at the most, it's very important to listen to the preaching of the gospel. And if you're a visitor tonight, and you've come along from the community here, invited by some of the Christians from the Midland Park Gospel Hall, then we give you a very warm, sincere welcome as well for this meeting for the preaching of the gospel. Now, the meeting had a bit of an irregular uh, timing to it. I'm not exactly sure when I'm supposed to be done, so I'll just set my own deadline. I'm going to be finished by 20 to 7. So, if you think I should be done by 6:30, I'm sorry. Uh, but if you're wondering if I'm litigal to late, well, no. I promise I'll be finished the meeting by 20 to 7. Now, if you have a Bible with you, please, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is a chapter that describes to us the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that big word, crucifixion, simply means the day when the Lord Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross and he died outside the city of Jerusalem. We're not going to take time tonight to read all of the description that we have here and the historical narrative of what happened that day. I just want to read one verse with you, which is describing to us an event right near the very end of all of the happenings that day at the cross, just before the Lord Jesus died. At that point, he would have been on the cross for about six hours. And just before he died, we're going to read from verse 30. John chapter 19 and verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That is, he died. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. If you took the time to read through the four chapters that we have in the Bible that describe to us from four slightly different perspectives, the same event, the crucifixion of Christ, you will find that the scriptures record for us several statements that the Lord made from the cross that day, seven in total. I just want to focus with you on this one statement that John records for us that the Savior made before he died. The Bible tells us it was a strong cry. Some people have the idea that when Jesus died on the cross, he was so overcome with weakness and suffering and anguish that that his life just sort of ebbed away from him as it typically would from a man dying on a cross that he would have had no strength left. Now, his anguish was real. His suffering was genuine. He suffered indescribable agony on the cross. And yet the amazing thing is this. This was a strong cry. Mark tells us he cried with a loud voice. In English, it's three words. It is finished. The original language in which the New Testament of the Bible was written was Greek. And it's actually just one word. It was a singular cry. One word. Finished the people around the cross that day, it was a strange cry. It was sort of a startling cry. In fact, the Bible tells us that the centurion, the, the leader of the Roman soldiers, when he saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he was so startled by it that he said, surely this was the Son of God. What was so startling about the cry? Really, to answer that, we have to understand two things. First of all, we have to understand what was finished. What did he mean when he said it's finished? And secondly, we have to understand what that word actually meant to the people who were around the cross. So let me just talk about those two things just for a moment in introduction in reverse. The word itself, when the Savior cried, it's finished. The reason it was so startling to the people around the cross is that that word was very commonly used in the Roman society of the time, in the first century. It was a word they would have been very familiar with, but it was a word that seemed very out of keeping with the context in which it's being said, because this is how the word was used. That Roman centurion, for example, he would have heard that word used in the Colosseum, all of you children, likely you know what happened in Roman Colosseums. They didn't get together to watch people play football. They didn't get together to watch people play baseball. They got together to watch gladiators fight. And those slaves, those strong gladiators, would be pitted against one another and they would fight often to the death. And as that battle went back and forth between two gladiators with their swords and their shields, eventually, one of those gladiators would begin to weaken. He'd begin to lose strength. He'd begin to start losing the fight. And one gladiator would begin to triumph, would begin to move towards winning the fight until eventually one of the gladiators would be down on the dusty ground in the Colosseum and the gladiator who was victorious, the gladiator who had won the battle, he would stand with his foot on the neck of the enemy that he had defeated And he would raise his sword, if it was in Rome itself, it would be to Caesar. If it was in one of the outposts, it would be to whoever the reigning Roman governor was. He would raise his sword at the end of the fight that he had been victorious in, and he would say one word, finished. What did he mean? He meant the battle is over, and I am victorious. I have won. I have conquered my enemies. I'm a victor. That's the way the word was used. The word was also used in the world of commerce in the first century in the Roman Empire. So if they had a ledger where there was a a bill owing, so a business transaction takes place and goods are exchanged and there's an, an amount that has to be paid and possibly there would be an outstanding amount and there would be payments recorded against that amount until eventually there was a payment that was made that entirely satisfied the bill. It completely paid that account. And when the bill had been paid and the account was satisfied, one word would be written across the bottom of that invoice. One word recorded on that ledger. Finished. The debt has been paid. It's completely satisfied. So I think you'll understand why it's a remarkable thing <clears throat> that a man who is dying in apparent weakness on a cross, a man whose enemies all around the cross are gloating, a man whose enemies are laughing and mocking and telling them that he saved others and he couldn't save himself and mocking his relationship that he claimed to have with God. And they're all gathered around the cross and here is a broken, bruised, bleeding form of a man on the center tree. And from the lips of that man, in a loud cry, comes this note of victory. It's finished. You can understand why the centurion was startled. What a strange thing to come from the lips of a man dying on a cross. What was finished? Well, to understand the answer to that question, we have to understand why he was on the cross. People around the cross, by and large, they didn't understand why he was on the cross. They thought he was on the cross because somehow his enemies had overcome him. They thought he was on the cross because he didn't have power to save himself. They thought he was on the cross because somehow, finally, he had been caught. He was an imposter. He was a blasphemer. He wasn't who he claimed to be. And he's on a cross because he's dying a death of shame. I'm fairly confident that all of you tonight know that's not why he was on the cross. In his own words, he was on the cross because Christ Jesus had come into the world To save sinners, he was on the cross because he had appeared once in the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He was on that cross because he came to make a provision for the sin of the world. In the words of Paul, the apostle, very, very personally, Paul would say, He was on that cross because He's the Son of God and He loves me and He's giving Himself. For me, In the language of the Bible, he was on that cross because of sin. He was on that cross because God was making a provision so that sinners could be forgiven. That's why he was on the cross. He was on the cross dealing with the one great issue that plagues humanity, the issue of the sinfulness of our souls and the holiness of God's throne. He was on that cross because of the question of sin. So therefore, when he says, it is finished, what he's saying is that the work required to deal with sin is done. The debt that sin represents, the payment that a holy throne demands, the justice, that God's justice can never be reduced. It cannot be bent. It cannot be broken. God's inflexible, absolute justice that demands payment for sin that payment has been made in full, and God is satisfied. So you see, it's a tremendously significant statement the Savior made. It's finished. So I want you to think with me a few things that we can learn from this statement that the Lord Jesus made. This cry, it's finished. First of all, I think from this cry we can see the sympathy of the Savior, His love. That's why He was there. How do we know that God loves us? You ever thought of how you would answer that question? Somebody asked you, how would you know? How do you know that God loves you? Well, because he gave me a, a good home to live in, roof over my head, a wife that tells me she loves me, I think she means it, four healthy children, good job, food to eat. Is that how I know God loves me? There's people who have none of those things. Does that mean he doesn't love them? How do we know that God loves us? You know how the Bible answer that's, answers that question? It says, hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So when I think of God's son hanging on a cross, dying in shame, dealing with the issue of sin, I'll tell you what it means to me personally. When I look at that cross, I'll quote Paul's words again. Because I can stand before you tonight to tell you that as an individual, one person, to me this is incredibly personal. He was on that cross, not because of his sin, for he had no sin. He was on that cross because of my sin. He was on that cross because he looked from a throne of glory down through thousands of years of time. And he knew there would be a little boy born in January the 2nd, 1964 in the island of Trinidad. And this little boy, Andrew Usher, would grow up lost and perishing and ruined in sin with no hope and no future except darkness and blackness and judgment and hell for eternity. He knew all of that. And he loved me. And he knew I could never do a thing about my own sin. And love to my poor, undeserving soul. Move God's Son from a throne of glory to the womb of a virgin through a lonely life on earth, ultimately to a cross outside Jerusalem in order that He might give Himself for me. You know what that tells me? It tells me how much He loves me. There is no one. I, I do have lots of people that love me. I'm glad. I'm thankful for them. Parents, a wife, children. Nobody loves me as much as he does. Could I tell you tonight, I don't know you, but I can tell you this with absolute confidence, he loves you just the same. And if you're in this meeting and you think that no one really, truly, deep down, unconditionally loves you, could I tell you the Son of God is a heart that beats true with love for your soul. If you doubt it, you look at the cross. And you remember that he is there because he sees you in your need He is a heart that longs to bless you, and he was there to deal with the issue of your sin and mine. But secondly, as I consider this this cry, it's finished, and I look at what happened that day at the cross. Not only does it tell me of the sympathy of the Savior, his heart of love to us poor, perishing sinners, but as I look at the cross, I learn a little bit about the seriousness of sin. We live in a world that doesn't take sin very seriously at all. In fact, people sort of laugh at sin. They mock at sin. Outback had a dessert one time, Sydney's Sinful Sunday or something, which I think just meant it had a lot of calories in it. So it's just sort of a joke. Sin's no joke. When I look at the cross, I see how serious sin is in a number of ways. I see how serious sin is when I look at the cross, when I think of what men did there. Because, you know, those men there at the cross were no different than you and me. And when we look at their actions at the cross, taking a man who was, I mean, from their perspective, or Pilate's perspective, he was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. Now, we know biblically he was much more than just innocent. He was holy. He was God manifest in flesh. But from a human standpoint, he had done absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, he had done everything right. He had lived a life of perfection, a life that tirelessly was poured out to help other people. He could truly say that they hated him without a cause, no legitimate reason. And yet what happened? That day at the cross, the hatred and the sinfulness and the animosity and the enmity that resides in the human heart towards the God of heaven, was allowed to just bubble over and overflow. And they got their hands on God's son. And all of the hatred and sinfulness of men's heart was vented against God's beloved son. They buffeted him. They spat on him. They smote him with a reed. Ultimately, they took him out and they nailed him to a cross. And they sat down and they laughed. And when I see what men did that day, I think... Sin is an awfully serious thing. But you know, I see the seriousness of sin not just in what men did that day. In fact, maybe not even primarily in what men did that day. I see the seriousness of sin in what God did that day. I've already told you personally for me what the cross means. I know that he was there bearing the sin of the world. And I know that there's many, many others even here in this auditorium and they understand that he was there bearing their sin. But to me, it's a very precious, a very humbling thing to think. That he was there on that cross because of my sin. How serious is my sin? You know, people often want to answer that question by comparing themselves to other people. And it's interesting when they do that, human nature being what it is, you always compare yourself to someone worse. Right? So... I'm not that bad. I mean, I've never robbed a bank. Or maybe if I was a bank robber, I'm not that bad. I never killed anybody when I robbed a bank. God doesn't ask you to compare yourself to anyone else. God doesn't ask me to hold myself up to any other standard. God simply says this, not one sin, not one sin will ever be allowed into heaven. How serious is sin? Well, when I look at the cross and I realize it was for my sin that God's son was there, I have to stand back and look at what God did. Because everything that happened that day at Calvary was necessary. If there ever was going to be a sufficient answer for my sin. And there in the darkness of Calvary, God opened up the floodgates of his wrath and his anger against my sin. And he poured out his fury without restraint on the one that meant absolutely everything to him. His only beloved son. Why? Because he was bearing my sin. When I look at the cross and I see what God did that day in order to make a provision for my sin, I begin to learn just a little of how serious sin really is you ever thought about that? Don't compare yourself to others. Don't think that somehow by some standard you're okay. Every single one of us human beings, the Bible says, we have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And when you look at the cross, you think of what God did to His Son to deal with the issue of sin. And you remember how serious sin really is. Because whether you're in this meeting as a seven or eight-year-old child or a 70 or 80-year-old adult, your sin is so serious, it'll keep you out of God's heaven for eternity. That's how serious sin is. But you know, the third thing I learned when I look at the cross, when I hear the Savior cry, it's finished, I understand the sufficiency of the sacrifice. I've already said he was there to pay for sin. So when he cries, it's finished, he is telling us, unmistakably telling us, that the payment has been made, and it's enough. God's throne is satisfied. His answer has has completely dealt with the issue of sin. When he cried, it's finished, it meant that the enemy was defeated. Satan had originally introduced sin into God's creation. And Satan's desire for you and for me and for all of the other creatures that came from God's hand is to ruin us through sin. That day at the cross when the Savior cried, it's finished. He was making a cry, a pronouncement of victory. That sin has been put away by his sacrifice. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that's why he came. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself And there on the cross, he cries, it's finished. And that resonates right down to us today in 2013. To tell us that everything required for sinners to be forgiven. Can I make that more personal tonight? Everything required for you to have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ was finished on a cross outside Jerusalem when the Savior died to make provision for sin. That's what his cry means. We sang it together. All the doing's been done. Everything required to satisfy God on account of my sin was done by His son on a cross long before I was born. That's the message of the gospel. Peace with God doesn't come through something I do. Peace with God doesn't come through my efforts, my baptism, my penance, my prayers, my money, my sincerity, my anything. Peace with God comes through the Lord Jesus Christ who finished the work on the cross at Golgotha. The sufficiency of the sacrifice that he made. But the last thing I want to stress to you that I learned when I stand at the cross and I listen to the Savior cry, it's finished, is this. The simplicity of salvation. A lot of you here in the hall tonight, you've already heard a lot of gospel preaching. So did I when I was a child. And I can remember when I was saved. I was saved when I was 10. I can remember for about three weeks or four weeks before that, going through an awful agony. Ten-year-old boy. Because I couldn't get saved. Maybe there's some of you like that in the meeting tonight. And you'd like to be saved. And you're burdened about your sin. I was. I didn't want to go to hell. I wanted to be saved. I knew other people who were saved. My sister had gotten saved and I was not saved. And I was particularly frustrated because I thought I knew how to be saved. I had told other people how they could be saved. I had bragged to my friends because my dad was a preacher. I could tell all of them how they needed to be saved. And I thought I knew how to be saved. I could quote dozens of Bible verses. And I discovered to my horror that I couldn't get saved. And I was trying to believe. And I was trying to trust. And I was trying to come. And I was trying to lean and I was trying to do everything I had ever heard anybody say they did when they got saved, and none of it worked. And salvation to me was like a complicated puzzle, and I just couldn't solve it. Someone like that in the meeting tonight? I want you to think with me about the simplicity of salvation. Let me put it to you this way To whom was the Lord Jesus speaking? When he cried, it's finished, that day at the cross, just before he died. It's interesting, because I've already told you, he spoke seven times from the cross. If you look at the seven times, Matthew and Mark both tell us one of the cries that he made. Luke tells us three things he said, and John tells us three things he said. If you look at those seven cries, three of the statements the Lord made were very clearly directed To his Father or his God in heaven? The first statement he made, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The last statement, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And the middle of the seven, when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Three statements where there's no question he was speaking to his Father, God, in heaven. Three of the statements that he made were very clearly made to the people around the cross. He spoke to the thief that was at his side. Verily I say to thee, today they'll be with me in paradise. He spoke to John and his mother Mary. Woman, behold thy son, behold thy mother. And then he spoke to the soldiers around the cross after the darkness when he said, I thirst. And they brought vinegar and they gave it to him and a reed to drink. That leaves this statement. To whom was he speaking? It's finished. Well, I suppose he was speaking to his father. His father had given him a work to do. He says that in John chapter 17. He said that to his parents way back in the beginning of Luke's gospel. I must be about my father's business. He said it to the disciples outside the well. My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. So he was speaking to his father. He was lifting his heart to his father and saying, It's finished. The work is done. Planned before the world was ever formed. And now it's done. It's finished. It's completed. It's over. He was speaking to the people around the cross. And he was telling them it's finished. Men will never again lay a finger on God's Son. Never. Two of his own came and gently took his body down and put him in a tomb. And the next the world will see of Christ. The one that they nailed to a tree is when he rides out of heaven in glory. Revelation chapter 19. The King of kings and Lord of lords. And they'll never again be allowed to lay a finger on God's beloved Son. All of that is over. His suffering is past. It's finished. He was speaking to the hosts of darkness, the devil and all of his emissaries. And he was pronouncing victory over them. They were all amassed against him that day at the cross and he triumphed over them through death. Hebrews chapter 2. Through death he destroyed him that had the power of death, that's the devil, and delivered those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So he was speaking to them. But you know who else he was speaking to? And again, forgive me for speaking personally, but this is what it means to me. He was looking down through over 1,900 years, as I've said, to a little 10-year-old boy who couldn't figure out how to be saved. To a little 10-year-old boy who wanted to know peace with God but had no idea how to get it. Because I didn't know how to believe. I couldn't figure out how to trust. I didn't know how to be saved and how to get saved and how to feel saved. I couldn't do any of it. On October the 15th, 1974, I fell back on my pillow that night, started to cry. I said, it's no good, I can't get saved. And honestly, for the first time in my life, it dawned on me, Andrew, you're going to be in hell, because you can't get saved. And that Savior who hung on the cross and he cried, it's finished. He was speaking to that anguished little boy to reach to me and tell me, Andrew, it's not up to you to figure this out. It's not up to you to solve this puzzle. It's not up to you to somehow try and get what you think you need to get in order to feel saved. I have finished the work. I've done it all. I have paid the price. I have satisfied God. And without trying to believe, without trying to trust, without trying to come or lean or figure anything out, I simply understood He did finish the work. That's why He died. He died on the cross so that I wouldn't have to go to hell. You say, is salvation really that simple? Salvation is exactly that simple. I was in Trinidad recently, just a few weeks ago. There's a young woman down there. She's from a Christian home. She's about 18 or 19. Familiar with the gospel her whole life and professed to be saved as a child, but was going through tremendous struggles on this whole subject of being saved. And her mother, I had been in correspondence with the young woman a couple of times. I stayed with the family when I'm down there. And this young woman had uh, asked her mom if she could talk to me. Her mother came and asked me if I would speak with her. Honestly, I, you feel helpless. There's not much you can really say to the person. But I sat and spoke with her and read with her, prayed with her, left her, came back to Canada. There were a few more email exchanges back and forth. And this dear girl, Rhonda, she would ask, well, how do you have peace? I know that Christ died. I know that he died for my sins. I know that he finished the work. I know all of those things, but I don't have the peace and the assurance and the confidence of knowing that I'm saved. And the dear girl was stuck there for almost two weeks. And just three days before this week, three days before I left this week, Tuesday this week, I got an email from Rhonda. This is what she said. She said, Andrew, I'm writing to let you know that I finally have peace. That's all she said. So I wrote her back, and I said, well, what happened? She said, well, I got to a point where... I was just so tired of fighting and struggling and, and, and all the turmoil that I said to the Lord, I said, Lord, everybody else talks about having this confidence and talks about having this peace and talks about all of this assurance and I don't have any of that. All I know is that Jesus died for my sins and that's all I have. Then she said, all of a sudden I just realized, well, that's all I need. That's all anybody has. We don't work to try try to somehow get an overwhelming feeling of assurance and peace. We don't somehow try to feel anything. We simply listen to what the Savior said. He said, it's finished. To whom was he speaking? I've already told you, for me personally, I'm so grateful that he was speaking to me. The words were recorded there in Scripture so that I could read them and claim them for myself. But as I close, could I just tell you one thing? He was speaking to you. Whoever you are, wherever you might be spiritually tonight, however familiar or unfamiliar you might be with the gospel, the Savior, God's Son, has a word for you from the cross of Calvary. It's finished. The issue is, as the meeting ends, are you prepared to trust him? Are you prepared to accept his word and accept him? If you are, then the work is finished. And you too can have peace with God. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to Thee at the close of this meeting and the close of this day of meetings.